So you and I are going boxing tomorrow for the first time. Mm, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm very scared. I'm very scared. I have no idea what to expect. You don't wear shoes. You have to bring your own things to wrap your hands. I've never done that before. They said they'll teach us everything, but um, I'm letting you know now I'm going to be bad. I did like one of these pre-workout classes once before. It wasn't boxing, but I did do one of them. And I remember it just – I was like, oh, I run I run Zumba. Like, this is going to be fine. It wasn't. It was oh, no. so hard. So I'm just afraid that – That's my fear. <laughs> this is going to be bad again. Early on when I met you, I remember you went to a workout class and you walked in and you were the only one there. It's really fun to just have all those memories in your head because they're not in here. <laughs> I remember you saying it was really hard and you couldn't – you couldn't skip on anything. You couldn't just like take it easy for a yeah, second because right. you were the only one there. Yeah. Man, I'm so glad I blocked that out. That sounds awful. <laughs> that sounds so bad. <laughs> I don't remember that. Okay. So for those who don't know, the person that you hear with the lovely voice and terrible memory is none other than Casey Robsky. That's right. I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> they tried to get rid of me. That's what Pitbull says. Yeah. Casey's here, which means that Rowan is not. Someday we'll get you on with both of us, and that's going to be a real treat for everyone. Watch out. I think it's too much power in one room. Be too much. I am Tracy Harrison, and this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support our show, please consider leaving us a review, because it always makes our day. You can also support Willing and Fable by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash willingandfable. And speaking of Patreon, we actually have a new patron, so happier here. Thank you so much for joining us as part of the Willing and Fable family. We are so excited to have you, and we're very grateful for you becoming a patron. Another way you can support the show is by signing up for a library card with your local library. And if you already have a card, you can just show your local library some love. But no matter what, we're just happy to have you here. Do you want to share the little note you wrote? Yeah, I wrote, yo, I love the library because it's true. I love the library so much. I have the Libby app. I love the Libby app. The Libby app is the best thing. I've, I like started reading again thanks to the Libby app. So shout out to local libraries for saving me so much money and letting me read books and listen to books that I wanted to read. So I love the library. I have to call you out a little bit in a positive way. Parentheses affectionate. Uh, because... <laughs> I know exactly what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> this girl, when I first met her, was like, I don't read. I don't read. I won't read. And you kept saying, oh, Tracy, you're so smart. You read all the time. And I was like, I mm. read smutty romance novels. That's it. Fast forward. Hey, Casey, how many books did you read last year and or oh. how many have you already read this year? How many was it? Was it 50 last year? It was over was it 50? 50. It was definitely like what? 52 or 53. Oh my god, I'm I'm a menace. <laughs> I let's see where we're at right now. Yeah, I'm at 20. Sorry. Oh man, what a slacker. I think I've read <laughs> honestly maybe four or five books this year so far, if that. You do a lot of research for this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah. do this so much, so when I read, it's mm -hmm. almost never something I'd recommend on this podcast. <laughs> okay, Casey, why don't you take it away? Okay, so Tracy introduced this topic to me the other day. We can give people a, a little peek behind the curtain. So the, the, the situation broke down like this. I decided mm. to cover this topic because I was like, this is interesting. <laughs> I think this is really cool. And then I got overwhelmed with life and work. And Casey 
like a superhero with a, a cape flowing behind her, came in and went, I can take over and mm-hmm. did. And I think I might have broken you a little bit. I, I would say in the span of the last 24 hours, I would call myself an expert on the sacred <laughs> band of thieves, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So that is actually a great prelude for what I'm about to say, which is at the time, my main knowledge around ancient Greece was centered around everything I learned in middle school. So I had I had a pretty low point that I had to build up from. So going off my middle school memory, what I really knew about ancient Greece was that Athens was the smart city and right. that Sparta was the strong city. Right. But in my research, I learned that there's actually a third major city in Greece, and that was Thebes. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I remembered about Thebes was from its portrayal in Disney's Hercules Yes, I think the same. You remember. Oh, like you want to buy a sundial? Oh, yeah. The whole kind of point of them showing it is that they needed a place that was so turmoil stricken, so awful that they needed a hero. And that's why Hercules and Phil went there. So this place (laughs) was made out to be terrible. Yeah. So when I was first starting, I was like, oh, my God, what were all of these awful things that happened? So when I started to look into it, came to learn that Thebes is actually doing pretty good in the hero department, actually. Oh, okay. uh, Yes. And that's because from uh, 380 BC to 340 BC, Thebes was protected by a group of 300 warriors known as the Sacred Band of Thebes. And -hmm. these warriors were the best of the best. They were elite. They were handpicked to join the band. And not to spoil too much of the story, but this comparatively small group of warriors was able to topple military giants of their time. Okay, that's really impressive. But that's, as you know, Tracy, not the reason why we are talking about them today. Because what really made the Sacred Band of Thebes special is that it was composed of 150 same-sex couples. So happy Pride Month, everyone. Happy Pride Month. That is the thing that I knew going into this. I was like, okay, I know there's an elite Mm -hmm. band of soldiers, and I know that they are made up of couples. It's 300 people, but it's 150 Mm -hmm. men who are in relationships. And then I got overwhelmed with research and handed it over to Casey. So after this, I'm out. My knowledge ended. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, honey, you got a big storm coming. Okay, so before I talk about the sacred band, we need to set some context first. But in reality, it's actually a lot of context because unfortunately, there is not much documentation on the sacred band of Thebes. So context is a lot of what we have to go off of. Mm -hmm. And also before jumping in, I want to preface this with the fact that I'm not a historian. Yeah, of course. So what I'm going to provide to the best of my ability is an accurate though simplified version of ancient Grecian history that surrounded the creation of the sacred band of Thebes. We always on this podcast say we're doing our best. It doesn't mean we're doing the best. Okay. Yeah, perfect. (laughs) That's a great starting point for me. So Tracy, to start, Mm -hmm. we have to learn some quick vocab. I love it. Oh my God. I'm I'm genuinely excited. (laughs) Oh, good. Okay, great. So while I researched this topic, the term league came up over and over again. So leagues were a very large and controversial part of Greek life. And okay. like the thing we think of today when you hear Greek life is actually a very apt term for what they are, because they basically can be understood as a fraternity or a sorority of city-states in ancient Greece. 
So the Grecian city-states would join up into leagues, which mm-hmm. would give them more power than the city-states would have on their own. Or at least that's how the story goes. Oh, okay. So it could be, just if I'm throwing things out there, Thebes and someone else would be in their own league. Mm-hmm. And then that's, you know, there's League A and League B and it's different city-states. All But all are in Greece. Yes. Yes, okay. that's exactly right. So it doesn't sound like too controversial at its core, but city-states forming and joining leagues, both voluntarily and by force, mm. resulted in a majority of the battles that I'm going to talk about today. Okay. So now that we know what a league is, we can jump in. Let's do it. Okay. All right. <laughs> so let's 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 buckle in everyone. So our story starts at around 500 BC in Greece. Thebes, which is that third major city, is the head of the Boeotian League, which is an alliance of city-states in Boeotia, which is a district of Greece. Mm-hmm. And all was, well, until it wasn't. Of course. And at around 480 BC, Thebes found themselves under siege when Persia attacked Greece. Okay. So Thebes and the Boeotian League as a whole decided the best move here was to just lay down and <laughs> accept their fate. And to say, okay, we're Persia now. So they went all in on that, which was a mistake. Oh, no. As it turns out, Greece was able to defeat the Persians, which left Thebes and friends with egg on their face. (gasps) And as punishment for their betrayal, Thebes was occupied by Athens and the Boeotian League was dissolved. So fast forward, decades go by. And in around 460 BC, there was this little thing called the Peloponnesian War. Never heard of it. Never heard of her. Uh, Don't know (laughs) her. Never met her. (laughs) I had heard of her. Couldn't tell you a single thing about her. Now I can. So that war (laughs) basically boils down to the Delian League, which was Mm -hmm. led by Athens, versus the Peloponnesian League, which is led by Sparta. So this is a typical Athens versus Sparta. And over this time... Thebes had become a powder keg of frustration against Athens because they are still being occupied by Athens. So bonding over their mutual enemy, Sparta and Thebes formed an alliance. Oh, okay. Oh, yes. This whole story is going to be lots of different alliances between Sparta, Thebes, and Athens at different times. So right now, it's Sparta and Thebes versus Athens. Mm -hmm. So they formed an alliance and together they were able to liberate Thebes from Athens in around 446 BC, which is so great. Yay! Thebes was able to reestablish the Boeotian League and all was well until Until it it wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) Ultimately, the Peloponnesian War ended at the turn of the century with Athens's surrender in 404 BC. And that should have been great for Thebes, but they actually were not happy with Sparta because Thebes had aided Sparta for the last 40 years and didn't feel like they were being adequately compensated. And on top of that, Sparta was continuing to expand, which left Thebes feeling a little nervous that they were going to be next on the chopping block. Oh, yeah. So famous flip-floppers that they were, in the years after the war, Thebes began to show some preference towards Athens. And that preference morphed into an alliance, which led to the Corinthian War. I'm learning so much. This is delightful. What happens next? (laughs) Against my will, I now know about these many (laughs) Grecian wars. (laughs) You're going to be on your deathbed whispering, the Corinthian War. The Corinthian War. That's, That's where it begins. So... While the Spartan king Agesilaus was out fighting in the Persian-Spartan War, Thebes, Athens, and other Grecian city-states attacked Sparta. So this is less than 10 years 
from the end of the Peloponnesian War, and Sparta has once again found themselves at war with their fellow Grecian city-states. Bummer for Sparta. So after more years and years of fighting, Sparta eventually agreed upon terms of peace with Persia and the rest of Greece, and this was known as the King's Peace. So synopsis of what happened there is the ruling was that Persia can have power over the Greek cities in Asia Minor, while the non-Asia Minor Greek cities are to remain autonomous. So I wasn't in the room when this peace treaty was created. (laughs) But it seems like the terms that they used were chosen specifically to punish Thebes. Because when the treaty stated that cities should remain autonomous, what they really meant to say was no more leagues, Greek life is banned, and the Boeotian League uh, has to be dismantled yet again. But there's more, because just to put salt in the wound, there was one exception to the rule, which is that Sparta was allowed to keep the Peloponnesian League. So that league is actually allowed. But the Boeotian League... Mm-mm. Thebes, you're done. No, no, sir. <laughs> yeah, it's really just like a uh, screw you to Thebes. Yeah, Athens was fine. Everybody else was good. But <laughs> Thebes really just got screwed <laughs> over in that. Yeah, they did. So despite all of that, the Grecian cities were finally at peace and all was well. Until, until it, it wasn't. wasn't. <laughs> and <laughs> even after sort of winning the Corinthian War, uh, Spartan King Agesilaus was still very mad at Thebes for their betrayal. And that brings us to 382 BC. And I promise this is getting us closer to the sacred band of Thebes. I know we haven't talked about it yet, but I promise we're we're baby stepping to there. <laughs> it has been a wild roller coaster ride so far, and I'm loving every minute of it. Good, because as I was ready, I'm like, well, I've got it. I mean, I have to mention the Corinthian War. Like it just kept getting, it just kept getting further and further. Welcome to from... Willing and Fable. That's yes. how it goes. <laughs> That's how it goes. So in 382 BC, the Spartans were marching north towards Olynthus to start the Olynthian Spartan War. Now, I don't know if you've read ahead, Tracy, but do you want to guess mm-hmm. what this fight was about? People fight wars mm-hmm. over like food, power, mm-hmm. uh, whatever. But you did also talk a lot about leagues. So I did. I'm going to use my, my big brain. Mm-hmm. Guess it has something to do with leagues. You absolutely got it right. It was about leagues. So Olynthus had broken the peace treaty rule that they weren't allowed to have any more leagues. So Sparta was coming to straighten them out. But they decided to take a detour. So on the way to Olynthus, the Spartan commander decided, you know what? Let's just attack Thebes. And so they (laughs) took a turn. They doubled back and decided they're going to go after Thebes. So Thebes countered what Hercules might make you think, actually had pretty famous defenses. So in the Iliad, Thebes is known as Seven Gated Thebes. Now, it's no bossing say, but that's a pretty serious amount of walls. All right. So unfortunately for Thebes, despite having uh, these seven gates, Sparta had conspirators on the inside. And these conspirators just kind of opened the doors and let them in. And so those seven gates were quickly breached. Oh, no, that's such a fatal flaw. Yeah, it's a problem. And so the Spartans' success over Thebes culminated in their taking of the Cadmia, Mm -hmm. So the Cadmia is a fortified Acropolis of Thebes and arguably their most famous landmark. And it was previously thought to be impregnable, but the Spartans got it. And so once they took that over, Thebes officially became occupied by Sparta. So Thebes just caught astray as Sparta was making their move. They did sort of catch astray. And I will note that that Spartan commander got in trouble (laughs) for doing this. Like he wasn't supposed to just kind of go rogue and do that. But 
they didn't remove <laughs> the the Spartan control from Thebes. So yeah, did they really mean it? Probably not. Um, oh, and so just to level set, because I know we've been bouncing around. At this point, Thebes and Athens are friends, and Thebes and Sparta are enemies. Right, because Sparta just occupied Thebes. Yes. So the next several years were rough for the Thebans. Sparta had replaced all of their political leaders with a puppet regime that dominated the entirety of Theban politics. And any remaining members of the Theban ruling class were jailed, executed, or exiled to Athens. And amongst those people who were exiled was a man named Pelopidas, who finally is one of the two main characters of our story. Ooh, okay. What a fun name, Pelopidas. When I tell you how many times I've had to watch videos to make sure I was saying it right, so if anyone knows that I'm saying it wrong, I'm sorry. This is how I'm going to be saying his name uh, throughout the episode today. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick moment to talk about Pelopidas. So Pelopidas was born into a very wealthy, aristocratic Theban family. But despite being rich, he was by all counts an awesome guy. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah, Pelopidas. I know. We really like him. So really quick content warning. Uh, I'm about to quote something that has some ableist language. Feel free to skip ahead a few seconds if you want to not listen to that. So according to Grecian philosopher Plutarch, who I will talk more about later, uh, Pelopidas spent his days, quote, devoting all his time to the public. And when his friends admonished him and told him how necessary the money that he neglected was, he replied, yes, necessary to Nicodemus, pointing to a blind cripple. Mm. So he clearly was like, listen, I know I've got money. I'm going to give it to everybody I can. So not only did this guy help the poor, but he also fought for his people too, joining the Theban forces as a young man, which is where we meet our second hero, Epaminondas. Okay. I'm so afraid of the other shoe dropping and Pelopidas mm -hmm. not being my favorite boy. The only reason Pelopidas wouldn't be your favorite boy is because Epaminondas, which I'm going to struggle through this whole time. I'm going to try my best. There's a chance I'm going to start calling him Epa because his name is so long. <laughs> we'll probably cut down this podcast by 10 minutes if I just call him Epa. <laughs> so it is in the Theban forces where we meet Epaminondas, who is our second hero in the story. And a potential new favorite boy is what I'm hearing. A potential new favorite boy, yes. I think, I mean, they're kind of tied, but I think he might be my favorite in this story. So... Why there isn't a movie about these two, I will never know, because their story has everything. So where Pelopidas was wealthy, Epaminondas was very poor. So mm -hmm. it's hard to tell if he's from a poor family. From what I've seen, he was from an aristocratic family that fell into some form of poverty. Okay. But I'm also seeing that he opted to live a impoverished life and is said to only have had one cloak, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Anyway, Pelopidas was wealthy. Epaminondas was incredibly poor. Pelopidas loved athletics and Epaminondas liked books and also athletics. Okay. So both boys love to, love to do a little kickboxing. Yes. And one of them loves to read. Mm -hmm. They kind of had sort of like opposite dynamics. But despite their many differences, the two got along and they fought side by side in battle. And as the story goes, in one particular battle against the Arcadians, where many Thebans retreated, Pelopidas and Epaminondas remained. And they fought fiercely, even as things began to look bleak. Oh. And in recounting the battle, Plutarch states, quote, 
Pelopidas, having received seven wounds to the forepart of his body, fell upon a heap of slain friends and enemies. But Epaminondas, though he thought him past recovery, advanced to defend his arms and body, and singly fought a multitude, resolving rather to die than forsake his helpless Pelopidas. Whoa. That is yeah. like Achilles and Patroclus level of like, brothers fighting. There's mm-hmm. love. There's war. Mm-hmm. It's angsty. I, how is this not a movie? For sure. I know. And like, he thought he was dead. Like he was just protecting his dead body. So against all odds, he was able to hold his own until help was able to arrive. And the two survived the battle and were able to recover. So if you look on the dock here, there was actually two... Uh, pictures that I have. Yep. So one is an 1882 wood carving of the battle by Herman Vogel um, showing Epaminondas rescuing Pelopidas. Okay. So it it is all uh, black and white lines as the, the, the way the etching is done, but it's very highly detailed. There's bodies falling on the ground and the center of the image is a classic, you know, soldier fighting with his, it, it looks like a Spartan helmet. Hoplite is kind of the title they go by. I knew you'd, I knew you'd know. Well, actually, I am a I am a total liar because I was going to leave this out just because it's so complicated. But at this point, they were fighting on the side of the Spartans. Oh, wow. So that would be probably yeah, a Spartan helmet. I was going to say no, they would never. And then I immediately had to recount that because, <laughs> yes, they were. They were. They were fighting with the Spartans at this All point. Right. So the man in the center of the image has a shield in his left hand and a spear in his right hand. He's got it held back as though he's going to thrust it forward. And he's valiantly protecting bodies around him, specifically someone at his feet who is kind of fallen, but but looking up. There are shields everywhere and horses in the background. and It's pure chaos. There's arrows and people and things. And it's it's really detailed and very cool. You're going to lose your mind when you see the next one. So this picture, I couldn't find a credit for who created it. I actually like it a bit better because it's in color. And that's pretty much the only reason why I like it better. (laughs) I like it because it's in color and I think that's neat. Because I think a lot of times you think of history, you don't imagine like the colorful uniforms. And in this you see Epaminondas with like a red sort of outfit. And Palafidas has a green and blue sort of color fit going on. Yeah. Interesting they have different colors. Yeah. You'd think if they were in the same unit, they'd have the same color. From what I understand... Some of these groups didn't even have a whole ton of cohesion amongst their own forces. So not sure how they kept track of that. Right. So this image is is beautiful. In the left side of the frame, the main figure is Epaminondas. So a same thing, shield in the left hand, spear in the right hand, about to you know, move forward. But at his feet in the foreground of the image is Pelopidas, again, sitting, uh, his one leg stretched out in front of him, kind of looking in fear. And then there's just this army the whole rest of the image the right side of the image going all the way back from almost one corner to the other is soldiers and and arrows and horses and everything coming yeah. at these men and then in, in the very foreground of the image is a man lying on his gr- on the ground it looks dead or potentially like he's, he's dead for sure <laughs> uh, and it's very vibrant and a lot of movement in the image and both of them show Epaminondas just really becoming a legend and oh, in yeah. a way that I'm sad that he's not a bigger legend for us today because this is incredible. Same. What I'll note here, though, is that it's interesting that Epaminondas fought more intensely when someone he cared about was hurt. It's kind of mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Don't forget about that, Tracy. Okay, I'll, I'll file that one away for uh, a useful tool. We'll come back to later. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So, all right. Before I went on that tangent, Thebes had just been overtaken by Sparta and Pelopidas had been exiled. But whoopsie-daisy, the Spartans forgot about Epaminondas. So because, like I mentioned before, he lived below his means, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, that's just some poor guy. We don't care about him. Uh, which was a big mistake. So while Pelopidas was gathering forces of the exiled people in Athens, mm-hmm. Epaminondas was training men within the city to fight when the time came. Oh, so they're separated right now? They're separated. My boys. Yeah. I know. My sweet boys. (laughs) My sweet boys. So he trained them for when the time came, and that time was 379 BC, when Pelopidas led a covert operation to take back Thebes. Okay. And I know it has not been long since my last side note, but this brings me to another one. Yeah. Which is that the historian James Rom is a total bro. We love him. James Rom is the author of the only book about the Sacred Band of Thebes and by all counts is the biggest expert on the Sacred Band and the context around it. I'm obviously the second. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> on this podcast we stand James Rom, thank you for your hard work mm-hmm. and for enabling your expertise to lead Casey Robsky to become the world's second leading expert on the Sacred Band of Thebes. Yes. Yes, thank you, sir. (laughs) He was actually the first thing I listened to when I was learning about this. I somehow stumbled upon a podcast that had him on it in my beginning. I did not realize who I was listening to until later. I was like, oh my God, it's James (laughs) Rock. Anyway, so other historians kind of dull down the re-infiltration of Thebes and they gloss over it and they're just like, oh yeah, Pelopidas and his friends took back Thebes the end. But James gives us the real deal and he gives us the whole story because when Pelopidas and his men broke back into the city and killed the Spartan rulers, they did it disguised as women. Oh my God. This is what they don't want you to know. So... (laughs) At least for part of it, they were disguised as women. And they did this because the puppet regime at the time was celebrating a festival and everybody was drunk. So Pelopidas and his buddies snuck into the city, batted their eyelashes at the Spartan leaders, got them alone, and then surprise, murdered them. Oh my god, how has this not been made into a movie? I know! I was like, absolute kings. We love to see it. Pelopidas, I love you. And so finally reunited at this point, Pelopidas and Epaminondas combined their forces and together they ejected the Spartans from Thebes. You do it. You are crushing mm-hmm. the game. I, well, they're going to continue to crush it. Just you wait. So this time, the Thebans knew that the Spartan king, Agesilaus, was going to be a very mad if he was not mad before. And he wasn't going to let this rebellion stand. So they needed to be prepared to fight. So in the years following Thebes' liberation, our two heroes rose to prominence. So Epaminondas was elected to be one of the chief captains of the Theban forces. Mm -hmm. And Pelopidas was put in charge of a brand new elite group of soldiers, the Sacred Band of Thebes. We found them! (laughs) We found them! We finally made it to the Sacred Band. Finally, let's dive in. So the Sacred Band of Thieves was unique from other military units of the time in many ways. But first, we have the most obvious difference, which is that all of the men in the unit were couples. So why do this? We needn't look further than the famous Athenian philosopher, Plato. Hey, I've heard of him. (laughs) I've heard of him. That's exactly how I felt when I was like, (laughs) I know him. (laughs) 
(laughs) So at around the same time as the band's creation, Plato's Symposium was published. Mm -hmm. And in the symposium, Plato writes, quote, If by some contrivance a city or an army of lovers and their young loved ones could come into being, then fighting alongside one another such men, though few in number, could defeat practically all humankind. For a man in love would rather have anyone other than his lover see him leave his place in the line or toss away his weapons and would rather die on behalf of the one he loves. End quote. So we can't be sure which came first, Plato's Symposium or the creation of the sacred band, but clearly there is some sort of influence here. Yeah, I love it. It's basically like, let's make them all couples because they'd rather mm-hmm. fight hard than look weak in front of their boyfriends. Precisely. That's amazing. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about the power dynamics amongst these couples. So as you guys covered in previous episodes. Yes, Rowan talked about the relationships between men in ancient Greece in our episode on Achilles and Patroclus. Excellent. So really quickly, just to recap on that, pederasty was an ancient custom wherein an Erastus, which is an older male in his mid to late 20s, and an Eremenos, a younger male past puberty, but typically under the age of 18, would partake in pleasures of an intellectual and or sexual relationship. I've actually seen mixed reports on if the sacred band was similarly formed of these pederastic pairs, Mm -hmm. or if they were more seen as equals. But either way, the pairs were committed to each other. Second century Greek historian Polyinus describes the sacred band as being composed of men, quote, devoted to each other by mutual obligations of love, end quote. They were so devoted, in fact, that each pair would exchange sacred vows and worship at the shrine of Iolus, who is claimed to be one of the lovers of Heracles at Thebes. Oh, so they would take vow, like lovers' vows. Oh, yeah. They were like fully committed. So I, I'm not as well versed in the pederasty side of things. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they were like as exclusive or committed to their partner, but this was a full on, we are exchanging vows at a shrine levels wow. of dedication. The big thing with pederasty was that a lot of families would hope they'd have a really handsome son because then they could attract a really important, Ooh. quote unquote, not suitor, but, uh, you know, someone to mm. mentor their son and that could get you really advanced in society. Sure. Makes sense. And it make a lot of connections. But let's talk about gay sex for a second. Okay. So the Erastes is the one who penetrates and the Eremenos is the one who is penetrated and the, that is considered to be more feminine. The power comes from being the man who is having sex with another man. What is interesting about that is – I think that's why I probably am seeing these kind of mixed reports because I think they both better be powerful if they're getting exactly. let into this group. So Exactly. So that makes sense why they're like, we don't really know if they, it was a pederastic thing or what, because it's like, well, these are also the most effective warriors mm-hmm. we have. So y- y- it doesn't matter what position you take, just keep winning yeah. the wars. <laughs> it's like, just keep it up. We don't care. Just keep going. So that actually leads uh, really well into my next point, which is that the Sacred Band was also unique because its soldiers were handpicked. So unlike other military units at the time, soldiers in the Sacred Band were chosen solely by merit and had nothing to do with aristocratic rank. Okay, that's really interesting. Only the strongest and most cunning soldiers were allowed in. I'm not sure how that works with those like kind of pederastic relationships, but I feel like this also means like, hey, you both better be good. 
Yeah. You both better be fighting your heart out to get into this club. Yeah. I, you might not know the answer to this, but it's just been burning in my mind. How did yeah. they pick who their partner was? And we might just not have that information. So, yeah, it, it seems like it's one of those things. So from what I can tell, I mean, this spanned over 40 years. So mm-hmm. obviously they had some sort of process for getting new people. Mm-hmm. What James Rom states on this is that like the most we have is that 300 was the number. Mm-hmm. Like they that had a lot of power. How they ended up deciding who got in beyond just saying you had to prove your merit to what I'm assuming would be the leaders of the Theban forces. I don't have much beyond that. I'm just bummed that we got the movie 300 and it wasn't about this. I know. And it wasn't this. And you know <laughs> I thought about that. <laughs> and it wasn't this. Additionally, another thing, just we just keep stacking them on. Another thing that set the Sacred Band apart from other military units is that this was a full-time job. So for the most part, Grecian military units were just civilians doing their part. And when they were done fighting, they would return to their day job. So if you were a farmer, you would go back to being a farmer. But with the Sacred Band... Thebes joined Sparta in having designated round-the-clock fighters. Oh, okay. I didn't realize Sparta was the only one who had that. Pretty much. When the 300 members of the Sacred Band weren't in battle, they were training and guarding the Cadmia. That makes sense. Fool me once. Yeah, exactly. You're doing You're so right, too. They're like, <laughs> not again. Not again. This is ours. And also, just lastly, to touch on, the actual creator of the Sacred Band isn't officially known. So some people say it was formed by Gorgidas, who was another Theban military leader. But others say it was Epaminondas. Our, our boy. We love him. Our boy. And I do fully believe it was the latter just because of that past experience in right. battle with Pelopidas. So clearly he's seen firsthand that battling for a loved one mm-hmm. can spur a soldier to fight past what they thought their limits were. Yeah. Let's get back into some more battles. We keep saying that the Sacred Band was this powerful group. Let's actually see them in action. So the Sacred Band saw sporadic combat as Thebes regained its power. Uh-huh. But what I consider to be their most impressive battle was one of their first battles in 375 BC. So surprising no one, Thebes' main concern after regaining control over their city was doing the same for the rest of the Boeotian League. So while they aren't loyal to literally anybody else, (laughs) they are loyal to the Boeotian League. So they were down at this point to one city left, Orchomenus. So our man Pelopidas Mm -hmm. had been keeping an eye on Orchomenus for the perfect time to strike. And when he heard that the Spartans had left for another expedition... He led the sacred band along with some cavalry forces to take over the city while it was left unguarded. Ooh, okay. Mm-hmm. But as usual with Thebes, they made a bad bet. Oh, Thebes, <laughs> <Yeah>. no! <laughs> Thebes, no! So as Pelopidas neared the city, they found that, nope, it was definitely still occupied. So hoping to avoid a massacre, <laughs> Pelopidas and his men decided, forget it, we're going to head home. And on their way back... They noticed clouds of dust in the distance, and quickly they realized that they had found themselves face-to-face with a vast army of Spartan reinforcements. Oh, no! They're trapped between a city and reinforcements? Oh, very much trapped, because the geography was as such there was no escape but through. Oh, no! So at this point, if you remember, we talked a lot about it being 300 people. That plus the cavalry left Pelopidas with around 500 men in his group. And the exact number of Spartans varies from report to report, but estimates place their army to be at least double. 
Oh, no. Yeah, things are looking bad. Uh, So caught by surprise, their only choice was going to be to fight. And according to Plutarch, quote, one member of the band exclaimed to Pelopidas, we are fallen into our enemy's hands, to which he replied, and why not they into ours, and immediately commanded his horse to come up from the rear and charge, end quote. Pelopidas is not locked in there with the Spartans. The Spartans are locked in there with him. Bully so. <laughs> so this was the beginning of the Battle of Tagira. And as middle school Casey would tell you, the Spartans were known for their battle prowess. That was their thing. Yeah. As such was their reputation that many armies in ancient Greece would turn tail and flee as soon as a Spartan phalanx came into view. Mm-hmm. And this reputation was known as the Spartan Mirage. And at the time, this was their principal weapon. Okay. Yeah. Just people knowing that they're really tough. Yeah. So when Pelopidas and the sacred band charged them head on, it was not something that they were prepared for. And in only their first attack, the sacred band was able to take out the leaders, aka the polymarchs, of the Spartan unit. After which the rest of the Spartans full on retreated. Amazing. Oh my God. Oh my God is right, Tracy, because this was unheard of. At the time, the Spartans had never lost to a force equal to their own, let alone an army smaller than theirs. So they walked up and they're like, well, this is great. We're just going to sweep on by them, head back home. It's going to be amazing. And instead, Mm -hmm. Pelopidas was like, oh, honey, you got a big storm coming, went charging in. Precisely. (laughs) And took them out. Took them out. And so at this point, the sacred band, our favorite group of 300 gay men, destroyed the Spartan mirage. Wow. I love it. So no longer did they have this great reputation because they're like, well, this group half their size took them out. So <laughs> are they really that tough? All right. Now we're going to fast forward a few years because mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of years in this story. Yes. So in an attempt at peace, the Grecian city-states met for yet another treaty conference. And believe it or not, everyone agreed on the terms of peace. Yay. I want you to know Casey put a little smiley face in the script here. They did. Until they didn't, <laughs> because <laughs> until, oopsie, <laughs> our man Eva Menandas came back the next day and was like, actually, can I sign the treaty on behalf of the entire Boeotian League, which is pretty much just poking the bear of Sparta oh to even mention the Boeotian League. And Sparta was like, uh, no, uh, because leagues are against the Grecian philosophy of autonomy for all. Except for, of course, the Peloponnesian League, because that one is apparently fine. Epaminondas said, hey, hypocrites, if we can't have a league, maybe you shouldn't either. And that pissed off Sparta, which pissed off Thebes, and the peace treaty conference ended in a declaration of war. No! (laughs) Oops! (laughs) Whoopsie! Oh, man. Pamenandas, I don't know if you intentionally stirred the pot or if you just really made an oopsie. I I feel like it wasn't. I think he was like, this peace treaty is going to mean nothing to us if we can't have the Boeotian League. So I think it I I think he was ready to be. Yeah, if you're not going to agree to this, we're going to war. So immediately following the peace talks, the two sides prepared for battle. And at first, many Thebans were in favor of retreating back to Thebes and preparing for a siege because they've got them seven gates. And this also made sense because they would be heavily outnumbered by the Spartan troops. However, Pelopidas and Epaminondas did not want to retreat and instead wanted to do that same thing again and face them head on. Okay, it worked once, my work again. These two were actually super charismatic leaders. 
I can feel their charisma now. I know. They were very well acquainted with how to win friends and influence people. So to sway the other Theban military leaders to his side, Epaminondas is said to have given a rousing speech complete with props, (laughs) where... where he announced that the best way to take out a snake is to remove its head. And in a demonstration, killed a snake by gripping its head in front of all of his men. Oh my God. Yeah. So it's, according to some folks, this is like that first imagery of to kill a snake, you cut the head. Nice. Trendsetter. He's kind of a revolutionary, a trendsetter. Yeah. (laughs) Driven by Epaminondas' words, the Thebans prepared for what was going to become the Battle of Leuctra. Ooh, another battle. So the Battle of Leuctra is a lot of historians' favorite. But just to start, we've got to know who's leading the pack here. And some sources say that Pelopidas was leading the sacred band of Thebes in this battle, and others say it was Epaminondas. So for the purposes of this battle, I'm going to call them Pelopinondas and just kind of <laughs> okay. cover all my bases. <laughs> okay, okay, so, okay. <laughs> I can tell you at least they're both there. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably Pelopidas who led the sacred band. It could have been Epaminondas who came up with the strategy. But just for this paragraph, we're going to call him Pelopinondas. So it. I have been able to avoid uh, talking too much about military tactics so far, but it is important in this one. Very briefly, Typically in Grecian battles, the troops would place their strongest warriors at the right flank. Mm -hmm. This would place the one army's strongest warriors against the other army's weakest warriors. Mm -hmm. The idea being that eventually you would whittle down each side until there was one winner. But Palapanandas decided to try a brand new strategy, which was stationing the sacred band, their strongest warriors, on the left. Mm, They're going to face strongest to strongest. Precisely. They had such complete faith that the sacred band could beat the strongest of the Spartans, which was a risky bet. Yeah. For seemingly the first time, though, Thebes bet correctly. Hey, good job. (laughs) I know. And the sacred band defeated the Spartan forces and even killed the Spartan king. Whoa. Took him out. So far, it's when Pelopidas says, we're going in, you trust that. You trust him. No, for sure. Like, these guys were uh, tried and true. People trusted them, and they were right here. Mm -hmm. And according to Grecian writer Duncan Halwit Marshall, quote, The battle led to the disintegration of the Peloponnesian League and forever deprived Sparta of their supremacy in Greece, end quote. Whoa. So it just Mm -hmm. took them down. They took down Sparta, which I didn't do that much research into Sparta for this, but I imagine they're a very hyper-masculine, toxic masculinity group. (laughs) And I very much like that this kind of Goliath of Sparta is taken down by the stronger group who's just like, we've got love on our side. And then they actually won. (laughs) Like, in history, they won. I love it. The power of love. And really intense training and picking the best soldiers. That too. But mostly the power of love. (laughs) Mostly the power of love and that, you know what, that we really need to train. Yes, you do. (laughs) Since they're my favorite characters, I quickly wanted to close the loop on Pelopidas and Epaminondas. Oh, yeah. So I'll try to keep it brief, but basically Thebes became a powerhouse. And so other surrounding areas would ask them for help. 369 BC... An attempt to liberate Thessaly from the tyrant Alexander of the Phyre 
Pelopidas was captured. So he was going there as an ambassador, mm. and he was then captured by the city. And I didn't write this down in the script, but I just want to share because I know it. Apparently, Alexander's wife hated him so much, and she would sneak down and just chat with Pelopidas because he was just such a cool dude. Oh my god. He's getting added to my list of like if I could meet anyone in history. It might he might be really high up there. Right? I I mean he does just seem like an awesome guy. All right, second thing. In 368, Philip, son of the Macedonian king, was held hostage in Thebes. So, I tried really hard to find this context and it was a little difficult for me since Philip II is also a king in Spain. I, I thought so. All I know behind the scenes, Casey texted me. She just said, I know so much about Philip II now. And I was like, I think that's a king in Europe. <laughs> and I didn't know the context for it. So in trying to prepare for this, I was like, I've got to know why Epaminondas, who is just in general, just like such seemingly like a great dude, why would he take like a kid hostage? I mean, obviously, he doesn't speak for the entirety of Thebes. But from what I can understand, uh, Macedonia was rising in Mm -hmm. power. And so Thebes took, I think it was around 30 members of nobility, which included Philip II, of just kind of be like, hey, we're going to watch over them over here in Thebes. So don't try anything. (laughs) Like, it's just kind of a, (laughs) please don't. During this time, Epaminondas took Philip II under his wing. So just kind of a, a nice little thing there. And that's what's going on for Epaminondas. Also... He was trying to rescue Pelopidas. <laughs> so Okay, good. I was wondering what happened. Yeah, it took a few tries and some kind of near-death gambles. But every historian says basically it wasn't looking too hot until Epaminondas took charge and they were able to rescue Pelopidas and get on out of Macedonia. That was in 367 BC. Okay, wow. They're doing a lot in the span of three years. There's 369. He attempts to liberate him. Gets Pelopidas yeah. gets captured. The next year, mm-hmm. Epaminondas is like, all right, I've got this Macedonian I've got a new son. Prince. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My boy. And then a year a year later, he's like, all right, Pelopidas, I finally got you rescued. And then- I'm here, th- man. <laughs> that's all in three years. Yes. So then we actually skip over three years. And who knows what happens in the next three years? But this one's kind of sad. So brace yourself, Tracy. This is where things get a little sad. So in 364 BC, Thessaly again is like, please, please help us, Pelopidas. Please. Alexander's a tyrant and we hate him. Pelopidas was like, I am on it. So he came back with his forces. And I tried Mm -hmm. really hard to figure out if it was the sacred band. I couldn't find it. But just for uh, theatrics, let's say yes. Okay. And they went. They were able to liberate Thessaly, save them from Alexander. But Pelopidas, in a Achilles-esque move, went haywire and was like, I'm coming for you, Alexander, and charged oh. him and uh, was killed in this kind of brash attempt. He also had bad luck because for some reason, an eclipse stopped him from bringing all of his forces. Oh, I'm not sure why an eclipse would do that, but everybody's just like, yeah, because the eclipse, they couldn't come. <laughs> yeah, like, so- you know, famously – Famously, eclipses stop you from walking. (laughs) So I think just from what we know about Pelopidas, I think he probably had the logic. So what if they've got more forces than me? Yeah. I've won in worse situations, which they still did win. So good job. Uh, Good job. Rest in peace, Pelopidas. We did lose Pelopidas. In just another battle, Epaminondas dies two years later. 
I didn't look that much. To, it, there was a lot of other things going on. I cannot emphasize how many different wars and battles were happening at this point in ancient Greece. I'm sure. So in another one, yeah. Epaminondas died, and it was a lot less dramatic, seemingly, as Pelopidas's death. So only two years apart. Only two years apart. That's kind of uh, tying a bow in the end of my favorite characters in this story. Mm-hmm. I'll talk about some other points about them later, though. To, to finish up the story on the Sacred Band, since that's technically what this episode is supposed to be about, they, as you remember, only existed for around four decades. So after they defeated Sparta, they were guarding Thebes and providing assistance for their forces in any other battles that they'd mm-hmm. be involved in. But unfortunately, they met their end, the Battle of Chaeronea. Mm, okay. And when was that? That was in, thank you for asking, that was in <laughs> 338 BC. So... At this point, Athens and Thebes are friends again. Okay. And they are battling Macedonia. Yeah. And Philip II, now king of Macedonia, has ended up creating quite the powerhouse of an army. I wonder where he learned that. Exactly. Unfortunately for the Thebans, is almost 100% thanks to him being effectively raised by Epaminondas. Oh, man. He took his strategies, he took his leadership styles, and as soon as Philip II became king, he immediately went in and did a total overhaul of how they ran their army. And apparently, when you think of a phalanx mm-hmm. nowadays, with like the spears kind of jutting forward, yeah, that, that was Philip II's thing. Like he apparently reformed what the Theban phalanx looked like oh. and added, I think, about five more feet to every spear, which made it very difficult to get through. Wow. Some more context also. When Philip II was made king of Macedonia, they were seen as the dirt water of mm. this area. Everybody totally thought that Macedonia was a bunch of plebes and that they were terrible at everything. And Philip II turned that right on around. Yeah. For several decades, he built up his army. He was becoming more and more powerful. And ultimately, that led to a battle between Athens and Thebes versus Macedonia. In this final battle, Philip II and his son, Alexander. As in the Great? The Great? Yes. That's his son? That's his son! So you could say Epaminondas effectively created Alexander the Great. He's his grandpa. I'm saying it. Yes! No, <laughs> fully. You you get me. That's exactly where I was going. So Philip II and his son, Alexander the Great, who at the time was just Philip's son, Alexander, <laughs> charged in and were able through very uh, strategic tactics, able to force many of the Athenian and the Theban armies to retreat. But one group refused to retreat, and that was the sacred band of Thebes. And as they had sworn, each member fought to the death to protect the rest of the men in their group. And in one battle, the entirety of the sacred band fought to the death. Whoa. I earlier was going to be like, oh, we haven't touched on how they ended. I wonder what happened to them. Oh, it turns out they were all wiped out. They fought to the death. They were all wiped out by the man who had been trained by the man who created them. Perfect uh, lead into my next quote, Tracy, which is of the final battle, Plutarch states, quote, and when after the battle, Philip was surveying the dead and stopped at the place where the 300 were lying, all where they had faced the long spears of his phalanx with their armor 
and mingled with one another, he was amazed, and on learning that this was the band of lovers and beloved, burst into tears, and said, Perish miserably they who think these men did or suffered aught disgraceful, end quote. Some people took that to mean like, oh, he didn't know they were lovers, and then he did, and then he was sad. I'm like, I don't think so. I think he saw that this was the sacred band mm-hmm. and was like, oh, my God, these these were the men. Oh, that's totally how I interpret it. Yeah. Yes. Because he would have absolutely heard about them from his his daddy. Epimenandas. His daddy, Epimenandas. And, like, that made me really sad. I feel like – so some people kind of stated it as, like – look at him he was like i support the gays and i'm like yeah i guess that is kind of like it but i think it's also because they were this group Mm -hmm. so seeing the symbol of his old mentor utterly annihilated by his forces philip ordered all of the bodies to be buried in a mass grave in the fields of Cairnea and marked with a marble statue of a lion as a symbol of their bravery Man, it is just a story. Even when people are fighting, it's still kind of mm-hmm. a story of like good dudes being good dudes. I will say, Philip was honestly, I mean, this sucks, but he was also kind of an awesome guy. <laughs> like he did seem like a really nice dude. Like every time he took over a city or something, he was light on punishment. Like he, like in this battle even, there was a shocking lack of casualties. The really main thing was the sacred band of Thebes that fought to the death. Pretty much everybody else retreated. And he was like, listen, Athens and Thebes, we're good. Wow. You're with me now, but we're good. His son was different. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Even though he took them all out, Philip kind of handled them in a really respectful way. Especially because the way you handle bodies after they die in in battle in ancient Greece was huge. It's something, again, that Rowan talked about in the – Achilles and Patroclus episode because it impacted whether your soul could move on. And <gasps> so what he did was oh, not yeah. only just symbolically really thoughtful, but it meant that he he was giving those soldiers a chance to move on and live in the afterlife and have a, a better future. I forgot about that. That was totally in Song of Achilles. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Okay. Come on, you Philip a second. <laughs> what an awesome <laughs> dude. So the story does continue, mm-hmm. which is remarkably – this mass grave was rediscovered by accident. Oh, my God. They found it? They found it. So in 1818, a young English architect was riding his horse along the Cairnea fields, and the horse tripped on what he first believed to be a rock. And when they looked a little closer, they found that it was the Lion of Cairnea, that marble monument that Philip II had built. He just literally stumbled upon it. He literally stumbled upon it. That horse said gay rights and found <laughs> the lion of Cairnea. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I did kind of bury the lead, but I'm sh- but they didn't find the mass grave yet. They found the lion. Okay. But unfortunately, then the lion was damaged in the Greek War of Independence mm. uh, that happened a few years afterward. Another 60 years passed and the mass grave was finally uncovered. And they did a major excavation and found 254 of the 300 bodies. Wow. And when they found them, they were laid out respectfully in their phalanx formation. So there were seven rows, just as they would have been in battle, laid out together, I'm sure to the best of their ability, in their pairs. I don't know why that got me. Yeah. The idea that they not, not only were they respectfully buried, they were respectfully buried in the position of warriors. Mm-hmm. Oh. And it gets it gets even better, which is the Lion of Cyrenea 
was restored in 1902 by a secret society known as the Order of Chaeronea, which was a group of homosexual Englishmen. Oh my god! So, a really nice end of the story there is that this group of, at the time, modern gay men were able to honor their spiritual sort of ancestors from centuries and centuries ago. That's incredible! Yeah. Casey, you found the best possible ending for this story, and I'm thankful <laughs> Thank for that. <laughs> I also have a picture which uh, James Rom, or man, he published for the first time in his book on the sacred band of wow. the sketch that was made of the bodies laid out in their phalanx uh, position. This is wild. So mm -hmm. it really puts into perspective the number of bodies we're talking about because it's one thing to hear 254 and it's another thing to see them physically laid out. So – and and I, I'm assuming this also shows the parts they found because some of these are partial skeletons. So it's, some of yes. them are only legs, some of them are only torsos, some are full-bodied skeletons, and they're laid out. I mean, this had to have taken so much time and effort, which really mm -hmm. highlights how respectfully done this was for the enemy. From the enemy, yes, exactly. And another just note on that is apparently this drawing, the sketch is so detailed that you can, they've mapped out where each of the injuries were on each of the bodies. Whoa. Like the, if there was a nick on a bone, they had that there. So good job, excavator who made this. Yes. Nice work. Incredible. Incredible work. So I know very early on, I promised you I'd talk more about Plutarch. So mm -hmm. we're at the end now. I've kind of cleans it all up. I do have to touch on this, which is a kind of bummer for a lot of this story is that most of what I've told you about the sacred band of Thebes is all from a single source. And that is from Grecian philosopher and historian Plutarch. So Plutarch had a series of 50 biographies that he called Parallel Lives, where he would compare the life of a famous Greek man with the life of a famous Roman man. And mm -hmm. like if he found similarities between their lives. And in this series, he wrote biographies on both Pelopidas and Epimenandas. But unfortunately for us, only two biographies were lost and one of them was on Epimenandas. No. Uh-huh. So I personally am really sad because I think he was probably my favorite character. <laughs> I'm devastated. Another side note, just because that's what I'm about. I love it. Is that... Pelopidas did have a family. Mm -hmm. He had a wife and children. They're quoted a few times in the Parallel Lives biography on Pelopidas. Epaminondas never married. And oh. in some article, I apologize, I don't remember where, which one exactly, they talked about the fact that he then had so many friendships to kind of take that place. And of course, the only person they talk about is Pelopidas. So were they a pair? Who can say? All I'll say, though, is I'm not – I'm not – and they were roommatesing these two. I'm just going to say we don't know. No, we don't know. We don't know. Like, how do you show your crush you like them? Like, why don't you make an entire army that's just for couples and then put your crush in charge of it? Like, <laughs> just like – How is this not a best-selling novel? How is I this know. not a movie? How is Madeline Miller not taking this over? We should text her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll text our good friend, Madeline Miller. She just doesn't know. I think part of it is because of this, because there's so little information yeah. on the sacred band. So while Plutarch wrote on both Pelopidas and Epaminondas, we lost the Epaminondas biography. So all of the information on the sacred band of Thebes is only being pulled from the biography of Pelopidas. And of that biography, only two chapters cover the sacred band of Thebes. 
at the beginning, when I said context is pretty much all we've got, mm-hmm. it's because of this. And James Ron will talk about in in his book, and he's talked about it in podcasts, that a lot of other historians tend to be more Spartan favoring. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them have underplayed uh, the role of the sacred band, not hopefully, not out of homophobia, but out of the fact that they absolutely crushed the Spartans. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of been downplayed. Uh, and a lot of the times, if it was mentioned, they just kind of talk about, oh, yes, the sacred band. And it doesn't right. really highlight all the facts about them and the lo- logistics of how do you become a member of the sacred band. Also, another bummer in the fact that all we have to go off of is Plutarch is that he lived 500 years after all of this. Oh. So if you asked me to write a biography on someone who lived 500 years ago, Tracy, I can't tell you how accurate that thing would be. No. It's asking you to write a biography about Shakespeare. I would not be very good at that. So <laughs> we're banking on the fact that there was a lot of oral histories at the time. We can also right. hope for the fact that he was basing this on information that has also since been lost, like the Epimenandas biography. He also was Boeotian which uh, would have been a part of the Boeotian League. So right. Plutarch had reason to be trying to leave maybe a more kind history, but I think at the very least an accurate history on the sacred band of Thebes. So that's just a little caveat here is that we have very little to go off of when it comes to the sacred band. But what we do have is knowledge about Pelopidas and Epimenandas. We've got quotes from Plato. We've got a lot of stuff that surrounded them that I think we can use to build what the story of the sacred band of Thebes was. Mm-hmm. And it's an incredible story. Yeah. Why don't you tell me, a, why don't you tell me a story? I will. I will. So, but before doing that, I mean, great work, Casey, seriously, oh, jumping in you. in two days, becoming the world's second leading expert on the sacred S- band of Thebes. I mean, who else could Famously do it? Famously, the second <laughs> leading expert. I should text James because we're going to be, yeah. <laughs> James and Madeline Miller, both very close friends of mine. <laughs> Soon to be very close friends. Soon to be. They just don't know yet. Um, Okay. So I wrote a poem early on in my research for this. So that's why I'm the one sharing the story this week because I was very inspired by the Sacred Band of Thebes. And I had talked to Casey and and you said, and I quote, I love poems. So I do love poems. I do. (laughs) You and I do. We both love poetry. Um, We love poetry. I wrote a a little poem. For all the days that wander by, lazy in their soft pursuit, traveling across the sky, meandering along their route. There are days that travel fast, panicked as they reach their end, desperate to become the past only to begin again. So I'll watch each sunrise long and slow and hold the sunsets in my hand and give them to you down below amongst the dead where you now stand. For I had a lover, strong and brave, and he fought beside me in the war, but life took from me what it gave, and now I'm more lost than before. My lover now, if you can hear my anguished battle cries and feel each single aching tear falling from my lonely eyes, know that I fight on each day, waiting for my fateful end, so that beside you I might stay as your lover and your friend. I got. I always get chills in the last bit because I read it to myself <laughs> the first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It is also kind of, you know, curious to know what does happen if you are a member of the Sacred Band of Thieves. You've made this this oath, 
Right. What happens if your lover does fall and you don't? Yeah. Do you keep going? I mean, it sounds like that's what Epaminondas did. Well, he wasn't technically in a pair with Pelopidas, but who's to say? We'll we'll keep repeating. Epaminondas was never a member of the sacred band, but he was around them. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He might have created them. We don't know. He might have created them. All I'm saying is that, hey, Hollywood, there's so enough here for a story, but enough missing that you get to fill in the blanks with whatever juicy bits you want Mm -hmm. how has this not been a thing or hey writers who have more free time than i do write this book please talk to (laughs) talk to me and james and we'll fill you in (laughs) one thing that i also was kind of puzzled by while i was reading this is i was like where are the gay women like i i get that Mm -hmm. the armies are composed men that's just the way we do things but i was like why not? Why Why the women don't have this documented stuff? Do you know that, Tracy? Why? From what I understand, and maybe you'll, you'll school me, is that it wasn't no. really that accepted for women to be in homosexual relationships because it was considered a powerful thing for men to do. But for women, their job was to marry a man, you know, continue the family. For men, being in a homosexual relationship was actually something that was considered somewhat childish it's like a thing you did when you were young you were out you were Mm -hmm. maybe you were in like your early i think like early 20s you're out and about the thing you do is you have your gay relationships and then you end them and you settle down and you marry and that's how you you know move on the rest of your life ancient greece really said it's just a phase yes (laughs) oh my god okay well i since there's so little known about the sacred band i'm gonna tell myself that this was they didn't see it like that. And they're like, you're a couple and you get to be as old as you want. It kind of sounds like it. So I'm going to go with it too. I I would like to think that. The, the whole reason I thought of this is because there's another quote by Plato that says, quote, love will make men dare to die for their beloved love alone and women as well as men. And when I first read that, I was like, oh, he said that gay women are good. And then I was like, oh, he just meant that women will die for their husbands. But I – or their beloveds. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of like, does Plato say gay rights too? I'm going to say gay rights for all, says Plato. So happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month, everyone. Thank you, Casey, so much for covering this Yay! incredible, intricate, and a lovely story of, of powerful gay soldiers and how gay love can transcend the battles of war. Yes! And and defeat the Spartans. I feel like they're just bad guys. I mean, I, I know I villainize them throughout this story, but kind of feel like they're bad dudes. Oh, but I just have to tell you more about Philip II, which is just like super fast. Philip II was also super gay. He had many wives, like political. Mm -hmm. None of them really dug him. The one wife, they had Alexander, like great. So some people were like, oh my God, like how Philip II died. It's like totally getting back for him killing the sacred band. And I'm like, okay, you clearly don't get it, first of all. Mm -hmm. But- I was like, but second of all, what do you mean? Which is that Philip II, he had many, many affairs. And so mm-hmm. one of the people that he had an affair with was a man mm-hmm. named Pausanias. And so he was having an affair with him. And then he found a younger man whose name was also Pausanias. <gasps> and uh, so Pausanias the elder was really pissy and did not like the younger one. And then a lot of stuff went down. Pausanias the elder was really done wrong. So – okay. He was done wrong. He was like, Philip II, hey, can you help me? Philip II was like, no, (laughs) I will not. But thank you for for bringing that up. And so Pausanias, the elder, killed Philip II. (gasps) 
Philip II was killed by his gay lover. So people were like, oh my God, he that shows him. And I'm like, all right, Philip II, I think he did his best. He, he made an oopsie and he knows it. It sounds like it. And I don't think getting killed by your gay lover is necessarily like shows you for getting rid of the sacred band. Like, <laughs> yeah, they're like, it shows you, you homophobe. And it's like, well, <laughs> that's just a little, a little ending on Philip II. But I just had to share that. Oh, incredible. I, I was like past midnight last night. And I was just watching YouTube documentaries on Philip II just for context on who he was. <laughs> like, just so I could really, really mm-hmm. understand, really get into the head of Philip II so I could <laughs> really get him. It was amazing. Anyway, do you want to tell me something good, Tracy? Sure, Casey. I would love to tell you something good. My Yay. something good is something you're pretty familiar with is that recently we had a painting party where we all went to my sister Jamie's place and it's it was like a paint and sip except instead of all of us picking the same picture from an online collection of a few we all picked whatever picture we wanted to paint and then we sat around and hung out while we painted them and jamie coached us through it and at the end we all got to take home paintings and every single person had such a cool painting by the end of it oh yeah it was so fun i felt so bad because i very much overstayed my welcome (laughs) like i was there (laughs) later than everybody else I got too into it, man. But everybody's pieces, when I wasn't glued to mine, trying to quickly finish up so I could be done with everyone else. From what I saw, everyone's pieces, they were all so unique. And uh, it was so fun to see everybody's different visions. Yeah. Yeah. I painted a, a black background with a glowing moon and a little bumblebee and some flowers and branches. And Casey, why don't you tell everyone what you painted? Don't get me started on Dolores Day, man. I am a major fan of the game Disco Elysium, and uh, they've got it. The lore in that game is so extensive, uh, which means it's so not only is the lore so extensive, but the art for the game is so beautiful mm-hmm. that anybody who plays it, I feel like you just get inspired. So there is such a strong fan art community around that. And I had seen a piece of Dolores Day, which is kind of a deity in the game Mm -hmm. that I really loved. And I was like, I am going to do a version of that, uh, of that digital art in paint form. So it was really fun. I I really, I'm looking at it right now as I'm talking, but uh, it was uh, ambitious and it took a very (laughs) long time and I felt bad. I was not participating in conversations. I was like, (laughs) I'm finishing this. It was a really fun time. So that was my something good was uh, get your friends together and just like do art and creative stuff. It was so fun. Yeah, it really was a blast. Yeah, get your friends together, do our creative stuff. Yeah. Well, now I'm turning around to you. Uh, Casey, tell me something good. Mine is actually really short. I always think very hard because I know this is coming mm-hmm. and I'm like, this is my moment. Like, what yeah. is the big thing I want to talk about? And I honestly, if I'm staying true to my heart, mm-hmm. What I'm going to say is something good is the song My Lover by Bird Talker. Oh. I can't tell you anything else about this band other than this song I just kept listening to on repeat while researching mm. this. Just because like every – if an article mentions a sacred band, if they do talk about who they actually were – the phrasing they use is it's a group of male lovers. Like that's what they always right. say. And, and for some reason hearing lover – Remarkably, it didn't make me listen to Lover by Taylor Swift. Right. But instead, this My Lover song by Bird Talker, it's just a very romantic, very sweet song. Mm-hmm. And it just always kind of – it didn't bring me to tears. But it is a beautiful song. So I don't know if it gets to go on the recommendation page oh, absolutely. or what. But um, I I just think if you, if you enjoyed this and you want to listen to a song that really I just think is very touching and sweet, I think My Lover by Bird Talker is a good song. 
Yeah. Oh, it's absolutely going on the recommendations page. I think that does it for us. So thank you all so much for joining. And remember that stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon. Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. The Spartans aren't locked in there with Pelopidas. Pelopidas is locked in there with them. You gotta switch my love. <laughs> I heard my pause and I was like, hold on. <laughs> wait, wait.